yeah, there's also the possibility when we're there that we won't want to get back, that we'll refuse to get back, mm. that we will encounter um, a self or like rediscover a self that um, is really angry or that is really um, is able to imagine something different or is even able to kind of uh, connect with other people who are trying to imagine things otherwise. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to writers and artists about their process and politics, with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the Storysmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In this episode of Tender Buttons, the final one of our first season and of 2021, we speak to the Bristol-based poet and academic Samantha Walton. Samantha is a reader in modern literature at Bath Spa University, where the focus of her research is the link between nature and mental health. She's also the co-editor of Bristol-based Sad Press. She released her first poetry collection, Self Heal, with Boiler House Press in 2018, and the poetry pamphlet Bad Moon with Spam Press in 2020. In today's episode, we speak to Samantha at length about Bad Moon and her debut non-fiction book, Everybody Needs Beauty, In Search of the Nature Cure, which was released this year by Bloomsbury. Everybody Needs Beauty is a complex and vital study into the connection between nature and health, which both scrutinises the harmful trends of a wellness industry that seeks to exploit our relationship with the natural world, whilst gesturing towards more radical ecological horizons that could lead us towards a more just way of life and means of recovery along equitable lines of social and environmental justice. Before we begin, we also just wanted to apologise as some parts of the interview have a more diminished audio quality than usual due to a technical problem. We hope you can enjoy our chat regardless. Hi, Sam. Hello. It's very nice to have you on Tender Buttons. Thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to be here. We wondered if you could start with a reading for us from your poetry pamphlet, Bad Moon. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's a long sequence so every little bit of it is kind of hard to read in isolation but this is a sort of short section a page that I really like we need new stories you used to say to re-enchant our world instead the rains came wheels raised in floodplains sung to the tune of the empty bones of endlings filling with microfibers We need new songs, but we are left with oil, the wild sheen of electronics, scratch of blood beneath the skin, marking lunar passage. The stories we told about the body, the uncalled for weight of it, the way we used to take photographs of the moon and call her a slut. Bad Moon is thematically, in lots of ways, connected to your non-fiction book. So we thought we would start by segueing into Everybody Needs Beauty. And first of all, I wondered if you could explain the genesis of the title, Everybody Needs Beauty, and how it links to your ideas and to the idea of the nature cure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Everybody Needs Beauty is a quote um, from John Muir's writing. John Muir was... Uh, Scott, who moved to America and became just kind of enraptured with uh, mountain landscapes and um, valleys um, on the West Coast and became very involved in campaigns for their protection and preservation. So really like the origins of the National Parks movement. And Everybody's News Beauty is kind of a bread and roses statement. It's like the the full um, quote is everybody needs beauty as well as bread. Um, So he's framing the desire for restoration and pleasure and connection and just not being in the city and not being at work in terms of something that everybody needs access for or access to. Um, So I was very interested in that as a kind of founding principle of the nature and wellbeing movement, this idea of like democratization and critique as well, critique of like the alternative to to these these spaces of like freedom and pleasure but the book also takes a more critical stance and kind of how that has played out in the modern world um and kind of asks is nature really for everybody does anybody actually have access to um freedom and quiet and pleasure 
um, does everybody have access to nature itself? And if not, uh, why not? And why isn't the nature and wellbeing movement concerned with that <laughs> exact problem? Your voice in Everybody Needs Beauty, it's like incredibly engaging and accessible, even though it's dealing with really complex and a very broad scope of yeah nature writers but also theory and yeah a huge scale of different things and i was interested about how you found the process you underwent to find that voice in everybody needs beauty and how it compares to kind of the voices that you enact with your poetry because they also for example between bad moon and your collection self-heal the voices are quite distinct it feels even amongst your poetry and things so i wondered like about yeah, finding your voice in everybody's beauty, the process of that. And yeah, it's connection and divergence with your poetic voices. Well, that's a really interesting question. Like, I think in poetry, I've always been obsessed, for a long time, been obsessed with the possibility of writing lyric poetry that, like, reveals almost nothing at all about me or about uh, um, the speaker. Like, a lyric poetry that's, like, really generous with its feelings, but also um, completely like shattered in a way or kind of quite disparate form of selfhood that's like intense but not particularly unified um, which is a very different place to come from than where everybody needs beauty comes from which you know kind of has my voice or has like a version of my voice that like leads you through different um, places and different experiences that I um, either had in the past or had intentionally in the process of researching this book um so yeah finding that voice was really hard because I'm you know a poet and academic writer and occasional fiction writer and this was like a bit revealing in a way that was risky possibly mm. um yeah it, it took a little while I think it involved quite a lot of editing and taking I had to learn to be a bit less caustic basically I think my poetry voice is often quite caustic <laughs> I had to kind of be a bit more gentle and, and generous and um yeah it, it, it was it took a while <laughs> I'll leave it at that yeah something I was going to ask relating to that is um because you are also an academic like did it feel important to you that this book Obviously, it leans heavily on the academic world, but was it important that it wasn't a piece of like dense academic theory? Yeah, definitely. I, I think the idea of writing it in the way that it I did, um, and particularly focusing each chapter around, so each chapter kind of focuses on an environment um, or like the idea of nature and what that kind of nature or that experience of nature does to us. Each chapter is is organised around water, forests, mountains, parks, um, and so on. And organizing it in that way was very non-academic. Um, my, my first kind of academic instinct was to organize it around ideas, or around arguments, and kind of unpack places and kind of zoom into places and histories around those ideas. And it was baffling, actually. It really didn't work. It didn't work as an academic book at all. It kind of bust out of its seams. Um, and that was a very interesting process to realize that, like, in order to write this book, I had to find a different form for it in the same way that I had to find a different voice, because to write about ecology, to write about um, the experience of kind of having a mind that's reactive to the world, it's very hard to to do that behind the wall that we're encouraged to build in academia to you know, pretend that our work is objective or to like often quite usefully achieve a sense of kind of distance from our work just to just to think about it critically um so yeah it was important to me for like reasons of being able to write it at all and just to be able to put as much into it as I wanted to um but you know there are real problems with academic publishing like the financial model of academic publishing is pretty broken it's very expensive and difficult to get hold of academic books and most people kind of mm can't read them if, if they wanted to so to have it available in a different way distributed in a different way this is kind of you know I run a small press as well so I'm like fairly obsessed with questions around distribution um so that opened up a very exciting spaces as well I think that's something as well that like really resonated for example in your chapter on parks was that like you you go into 
as you mentioned in the title, like writers like John Weir, who are so concerned, who, who did, you know, important work around national parks and the idea of wildernesses, which you critique in the book. But like, it, it felt really unique to come across writing about like public spaces, which have historically been like the last kind of bit of green space that working class people could access after the enclosures. And that felt like really fresh and important. And I like wondered how it was to write about green spaces like parks, which are less written about than the mountains that like John Moore wrote about. It was really interesting because like the mountain chapter was the one that I found the hardest to write just because it's so like overwritten, like because of that history, because of those like specific, it's like one of the few spaces in which writers have really like you can pinpoint they did something for conservation like they really did something for environmentalism it's like massive that people who are predominantly like creative writers changed the way that mountains are preserved and, and used and kind of fantasized about so much so I, I found writing about Moore really really heavy just to like try to tell that story slight like a tiny bit differently um it was really really hard so parks were quite liberating in a way because there you know there's there's work in kind of like social history around parks there's work in environmental history and kind of urban studies and things like that but literature of parks which is kind of like the lens that I bring because I'm a literature person (laughs) the lens that I bring in just kind of hasn't been pulled together in exactly that way so actually like threading the ideas together was um just I, I didn't feel like I was like overshadowed by the many people that have done that before um, but you know parks have this really really important role in the other space that I wanted to to enter or to kind of engage with in this book which is that nature well-being space which is like where doctors and kind of health professionals of all kinds and um, therapists encourage people to get outdoors they're often talking about parks. Parks are the places where they're saying you should go. So parks occupy this really, really big place in um, quite a lot of discourse around nature and well-being. And they're almost always portrayed as just this this good thing. Like parks are a good thing. It's really hard to say parks aren't a good thing. Um, And I don't say that parks aren't a good thing in the book, but um, I, I do try to sort of problematize, you know, the fact that they're, their history, as you say, is like they're the bits of nature that are left for working class people. They're like the bits of green that if you live in a city and you don't have much money to get outside or much time to get outside of it, that's kind of all you get. Um, so what was challenging for me for writing about parks was trying to take a critical stance on them. Writing this book during lockdown where everyone was like, you know, desperate to be in parks where they were like absolute lifelines, um, trying to do that in a way that was like compassionate, but also, um, yeah, just just actually unraveled their their politics and how they could be done differently, how like, the idea of having a right to green space locally could be reimagined in ways that were more ecological and more um, concerned with like handing power and ownership of those spaces back to actual people rather than mm. um to, to town councils you know most parks are kind of private spaces more than they are public spaces thinking about the pandemic did you start writing this book prior to the pandemic or did you start writing it during the pandemic and did the pandemic influence it yeah there's like a, a big like cliff edge i fall off in the writing of this book um in gardens basically I um, wrote everything, so the chapter about forests, the chapter about mountains, the chapter about water were all written and like finished as pieces of writing, obviously edited them, but you know, pretty much done. And then it was January 2020 and February 2020, and I was thinking, I really better write that chapter about gardens. And then the pandemic started Mm. and suddenly I couldn't go anywhere apart from the pretty local area I am in East Bristol and the kind of the first draft of garden chapter was like three times longer than it needed to be it was just me like in those strange intense days of early lockdown just kind of tripping out and sticking my face into flowers and just like touching like all the the living entities all the plants um, in my immediate environment 
to to make sense of that period and yeah um parks as well was written under conditions of like i guess like deep lockdown um which you know gave me something to to do and to focus on um i was obviously doing a lot of other stuff as well at that time but yeah that it was quite i don't want to say anything about this pandemic was useful because that's like gruesome but seeing the way that people were like politicizing access to green space whether that was like having their own garden having like shared gardens or having a park locally really did just remind me of the the kind of initial questions I wanted to ask and kind of open up a lot of questions and critiques that maybe weren't there to me before. Just thinking of the pandemic and heightened awareness about green deprivation and what we've been talking about with the parks as well as the John Weir quote about everybody needs beauty. It struck me as well like your argument about the the nature cures because it's not like there's just one but like the iterations of it that you discuss kind of this very neoliberal emphasis on like the individual well-being nature cure industry so I was wondering if you could touch on that a little bit but also then thinking about which comes through very strongly throughout the book the kind of the collective alternative to that which we're so kind of desperately in need of and which yeah it seems like the questions are being asked and there's like a greater awareness but whether that is put into action is is like another thing yeah i mean the the well-being question is so interesting like well-being is such a contested term like it's thrown around so casually um in any kind of educational context like health context you know the, the government as well constantly talk about things that are good or bad for our well-being mm. you know that fit in line with whatever their new policy is and it's like oh my god it, the thing that's most damaged my well-being over the last 10 years is this government but you know it's, yeah. it's this term that can be like really richly recuperated mm. and weaponized against people um so i kind of was conflict conflicted about using it as a term in the book anyway partly because of that sense in which it's you know we when we're encouraged to think about our well-being it's almost like a oh just like a little little part of ourselves that we can like coach and pamper and um, uh, consume on behalf of which makes it a very kind of individualistic concept there's also this kind of this wider framing of well-being that you know the world economy which includes world ecology is um, geared towards ensuring or improving the like quote unquote well-being of wealthy consumers in the global north like so much um the, the human cost and the ecological cost of producing products to improve the, the well-being of um wealthy people is like at, at the root of the environmental crisis so like as a as a term um and as a as an industry it like really really needs to be unpacked it's hard to do that in the context of nature and well-being because that advice, that kind of area of research that suggests nature is good for us and can kind of help with treatment of depression, treatment of anxiety, um, other other kind of ways in which people are struggling, like that research and that um, those medical interventions are for really vulnerable people and they have like quite a lot of success. It does tend to help people to be given the opportunity to um access parks to go to forests to be sort of supported to explore environments they haven't been to before um so it's, it's a hard space to critique because like often what you end up doing is um problematizing interventions that are like really really helping people on a practical level and i, mm. I saw that a lot when i was like going around researching going to maybe conferences or these kind of interesting festivals where a lot of the people presenting there would be researchers or be medics or be practitioners but there'd also be a lot of service users as well just talking about like how transformative some of the experiences they'd had had been in their lives which had been like just not in a good place before the positive aspects of say like parks as green spaces right which you've kind of touched on they're contingent or there's they're given with the caveat that they will have railings and they will be locked and that you will return to your working lives which are full of the zero hour contracts or the, you know, the kind of level of precarity we have now or the kind of exploitation. These moments of leisure that are gifted to those that don't, you know, 
and the estates that you mentioned in some of the garden parts are contingent on returning back to world of work which is inherently exploitative which you also touch on uh, when you're talking about uh, the shinrin yoku that was introduced like widespread introduced by the japanese government in the 80s because of high workplace suicides and these kind of things so i guess i was thinking about like what the alternatives might be or are that you came across that like are existent now or that we can like point towards some imaginaries around yeah that, that makes total sense that that kind of paradox well not paradox that that kind of like <laughs> division between using nature as a space to just like recover from capitalism like delegating mm-hmm. the work of recuperation to nature so that we can like mm-hmm. be more productive the next day yeah. um is such a it's just such a big part of the nature cure industry and kind of the history of nature cure as well whether it's um whether it's parks or gardens or even forests and and mountains you know that's how john muir talked about mountain spaces Mm. places for um, people to to get away from the city um but yeah there's also the possibility when we're there that we won't want to get back that we'll refuse to get back Mm. that we will encounter um a self or like rediscover a self that um is really angry or that is really um is able to imagine something different or is even able to kind of uh, connect with other people who are trying to imagine things otherwise. Mm. Um, I'm really interested in like practical activist work like um, Patagonia, who I write about in the book, the Mm. drag queen and um, advocate for LGBTQ plus people in nature, who's also um, who sort of started out just by kind of celebrating queerness in mountain environments and really like unsettling that very cis het white able-bodied male perspective of kind of who walks in the mountains through performing as a drag queen um i've been really fascinated by the way that she has reached out to communities of color indigenous communities um to create this like incredible space um to kind of support summer camps for queer youth or to lead groups um, often through like just like the amount of work that Patagonia does to get funding to support um, people who wouldn't otherwise be able to to take time out or to um, gain skills kind of be in the mountains that's really fascinating because it's like it's giving those people that space to discover themselves and to like just just kind of grow and explore as people but it's also creating communities that are asking really challenging questions around um the way that we tell the story of the so-called wilderness like the way that um indigenous narratives have been erased from those mountains um so that that's a really positive practical activist Mm. example Um, in terms of like literature and stuff more historically um, certainly bessie head is a writer i um, I'm obsessed with and kind of come back to again and again. And she was a refugee from South Africa who found a home in rural communities in Botswana and became involved in uh, cooperative farming. And I write about her in my farm chapter um, because she suffered from uh, psychosis, uh, recurring kind of severe mental health problems uh, caused by trauma really of, of growing up under apartheid. And farming isn't just like a simple cure for her. It doesn't just like make all of her mental health problems go away. It doesn't make apartheid in South Africa go away, but it does create these conditions for cooperative living in Botswana that um, is involved in these like wider, the wider moment of decolonization as Botswana claims its independence and allows communities to become more resilient in terms of like growing their own crops, not being dependent on South Africa and um, improving ecology as well, like working with what's there in this very arid landscape to to channel water and to kind of understand how the rains come and kind of how crops can be like, can be allowed to flourish there. And it's that, it, again, in both times, it's that question of like, how can we, or how can these people <laughs> deconstruct and decolonize what has gone before yeah. and create new communities and new ways of living together which simultaneously benefits the individual or the, the person who is suffering and vulnerable yeah. and the community and kind of kind of yeah just propels them into a, a different kind of better mm. future 
Um, I wanted to ask you about wellness culture. So wellness culture being like, um, I guess, like the commodification of like self-care and I don't know, kind of like um, pithy posts on Instagram about like how to look after yourself and how to be in nature and about climate change, etc. And um, I was thinking about how that seems to be quite a big influence on teenagers and young people growing up today like within the spectrum of like global crisis and the climate crisis and I was thinking about how when I was a teenager growing up in kind of the early 2000s um the the culture was very much about like hedonism and self-destruction and like drinking a lot and taking drugs and going to parties but how there's been a complete shift to something different which is much more about taking care of yourself but perhaps that culture is also just as destructive, Mm. but it's just wearing a different mask. Or is it a response to kind of the world self-destruct or like humanity self-destructing anyway? Um, So kind of like, what is your opinion on wellness culture? And how do you think it plays into this idea of um, self-destruction, but for like the individual and for like humanity I think that's a big question (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I will do my best um that's a really interesting question um it's really interesting because like that sense of like what particularly young people do like what kinds of cultures they create to like resist their world um and to survive it and like possibly to thrive in it is a really fascinating one and like i as interested in the parallels between like the obligatory nihilist self-destructive hedonism of like which probably defines my sort of like (laughs) 90s early noughties I guess I I wonder like how similar that is to wellness culture paradoxically of, of young people now like it's yeah it's something to do with kind of like separating yourself off or like defining yourself against what you're given and I guess like for young people now, what they're given is so shit. I mean, it's so bad. I feel awful working with students and looking at like the climate crisis, looking at um, social inequality, our government, and other governments um, around the world. Like it's, it's so despairing. Like I can completely understand a reaction against that would be this kind of preservation of the the ego like not in an egotistical sense but you know just simple preservation of the self it's just like a, mm. a part of a spectrum with like other ways to try to survive that other kind of young people have taken at other points in history like it's like on a spectrum with like absurd humor or like dark comedy or something which is probably like the the side of the survival spectrum that I sat on as a young person um, so I don't want to be too down on it because I think that there's like it must be produced by something right and it must be doing something um, useful for for them um, it's definitely not my mode at all and it's really funny that like since I've written this book around like nature and wellness like people often ask me like to give them well-being advice and like, <laughs> no no I'm not a wellness guru I'm like really interested in like fractured and broken relationships and like how we, they can be restored just on the topic of the climate crisis and how you explore it in the book and potentially this kind of like inhibition to action coming from something that you call in the book scale framing so towards the conclusion you speak about scale framing being a problem of inhibiting climate action um like this paralyzing quality to it could you explain like what scale framing is and why it is a problem yeah I think like a lot of people I don't know how true this is of youth activists now because I think they're like so much better organized than certainly like I was when I was that age but like I know that so I grew up I've always grown up with an awareness of climate catastrophe like it was part of my schooling I was like part of that generation where teachers thought oh, if we if we educate these these small people then maybe in 20 to 30 years time they will be in positions of power and fix the problem 
um, which I think is like such a cop out um, and quite a lot of a burden to bear as, you know, like a four year old. I have a, a lot of challenges, a lot of questions around like yeah, educating infants as like the first port of call for, for climate action. Um, I think that the, what was quite crushing about that kind of existentially was this feeling that we need to solve the climate crisis or I need to solve the climate crisis. Um, and that plays out either in modifications to daily consumption habits, um, you know, thinking about carbon footprints, thinking about what you consume, which I'm not against. I think it's a really important like basis for ethical action. And I do think as consumers in the global north, we do have like a disproportionate impact in it out, on an individual scale um, on the world than um, people in the global south do. And that's like it's not just what I think, like that, that's that's borne out by um, data. But yeah, it can create this like absurd kind of paradoxical situation where like a really, really small modification to your daily lifestyle is kind of offered to you as the solution to these vast, interconnected, baffling hyper object, you know, that, that is climate change. Um, which is hard to conceptualize in itself. And then also it's just like materially not going to work because we know the biggest um, consumers of uh, carbon and kind of, sorry, emitters of carbon are the oil industry, the military, you know, big shipping, <laughs> things that we actually have no control over that are really in the hands of governments. Um, so yes, scale framing is this idea that's often used in kind of environmental education. Um, and environmental like philosophy around thinking about what you want to achieve in your actions and like what kinds of organizing um, would be necessary to achieve, achieve effects on a bigger scale. Mm -hmm. So you don't get into that weird position where you think like, I am the lonely individual tasked with saving mm -hmm. the planet, um, but you know, can, can understand like the difference between micro scale changes, which might be like litter picking in your street or recycling scheme for a school. Um, and then like mesoscale changes, which might be, you know, changing infrastructure in a city, you know, changing what kind of fossil fuels or getting moving away from fossil fuels in public transport to macro level stuff and just kind of working out like it's all around agency. And if you feel you have no agency because your small changes aren't affecting the big stuff, you can feel like you have no power. But actually, it's more of an understanding of like what kind of collective yeah responses are necessary to to create the power that you that you want and that you need um i was really interested in the way that you write about time um in your book and i was particularly interested in um your references to attention restoration theory so i wondered if you could explain what that was well, I wanted to ask you whether there's something inherently kind of anti-capitalist um, in the notion of like rest, paying attention to things, thinking outside of capital time and how being in nature um, enables you to do that possibly for a short period of time. Yeah, so the, the two main theories of what happens when we like go to nature and nature in that framing means like a green space or a park really um there's art attention um restoration theory which is this idea that we have this store of attention that is taken away from us in the course of the day you know we're sucked into work or like a task um or certain kinds of thinking um even like watching tv kind of takes away our attention kind of fascinates us and um there's this uh, the, the, the idea behind attention restoration theory is that attention becomes so depleted that we become incapable of ach achieving our tasks and yeah like this is borne out like anybody who's ever been i mean i experienced like an attention crisis <laughs> about like 10 times a day probably about every 40 minutes my brain just like stops focusing um, and the idea of attention restoration theory is if you go out to nature, to a green space, look at a tree, touch flower, um, it doesn't fascinate you or it doesn't kind of deplete your attention in quite the same way as other things in your life. Uh, it's the, the term they use is soft fascination. So it kind of interests you, but like your thoughts can wander at the same time. It doesn't like suck your attention away. Um, 
so that's why people are you know advised to take like a 10 minute break and go for a walk to to kind of come back to work renewed um which you know makes it sound like it's just completely recuperated by capitalism i think that like whatever you're doing you know, if you're writing a book or doing a project that you really love um you might also need to to step away from it and the attention restoration experience would be probably quite similar um the other theory is stress reduction theory and that's the idea that modern life or life in general like produces stress that like instead of depleting something it's kind of adding something burdensome to our minds and to our bodies as well because stress is like hormonal as, as much as it is kind of um cognitive and the idea there is that nature just like isn't stressful <laughs> so we can just go there and like unpack some of that stress and kind of let it go away um so so both of those theories like i don't love stress reduction theory because it doesn't really suggest that nature is special in any way it's just not stressy um which is arguable because some people find some natural environments quite stressful um but you know, anyway it doesn't really tell us anything about nature but attention restoration theory at least has this sense that like something transformative pleasurable interesting like better than work is happening um when we engage with or just like are in the presence of the more than human um and yeah both of them are very vulnerable to recuperation and both of them are also like very primed to be uh like seized by people who want to be critical of um of of work cultures of um the, the stress that exists in society the fact that people are subject to so much stress so the fact that attention is like so often like thieved from us um yeah i think both theories can be kind of used for like both radical and conservative ends one chapter where i thought that like there was a practical enactment of like radical attention was in the mountains one where you kind of reference nan shepherd who i know you've written extensively on and i think it would be good um, for you to just explain a little about Nan Shepherd for those who haven't read any of her but her kind of philosophies around wandering in the mountains and the Cairngorms where she lived her whole life um, as being a kind of refute of the like all-conquering male macho ascent and all of the kind of competitive competitiveness of that literature that we've like read so much and yeah I thought like that was a really powerful and practical navigation against that in the mountain chapter where your own voyage around the mountains is kind of informed by Nan Shepherd's kind of philosophies um so yeah I wondered if you could like touch on Nan Shepherd just briefly about in what ways she refutes this kind of patriarchal all-conquering ascent stuff and how that plays out uh in your own exploration of mountains in the book Actually, I wanted to say just on the attention thing, like my thinking around that is really shaped by Jenny O'Dell's work, um, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, which is all about the way that, you know, we when we take pay attention to other things, like step away from the things that are intentionally distracting us. We notice um, a lot of what is wrong, a lot of what is fractious and unfair um, about the world. And it's interesting to pair that against Nan Shepherd, who, you know, she's a Scottish writer, she's writing in the, um, she's a very successful novelist, poet in the 20s and 30s, and then she writes this book that she just kind of can't, <laughs> I don't know why she doesn't publish it, like the, the Living Mountain, she writes it in the 40s, although it's reflecting on experiences that go back to the 20s, walking in the Cairngorms, um, finally comes out in the late 70s, and now is, is really successful and much loved, and it is all about um shifting perspective i think that the the main kind of premise of the book and the main obsession of the book is about what happens when you look at something from a different angle and she does this really physically in the body she like looks through her legs like put her head upside down to look at the mountain in this like decentered like almost ecocentric way to, to see how how the mountain sees itself when you kind of take away the just like the, the normative position that you like come at nature from as a human um and yeah she she falls asleep on the mountain she kind of hangs her heads over, over, over precipices she touches 
the roots of plants she just kind of gets into the matter of life and the stuff of life in order to know it and to know it differently because you know you certainly walking in the era that she did as a woman um in you know the the tail end of a long period in which people had been going to mountains to prove how physically strong they were and to conquer nature and to you know that those kind of theories about why mountaineering became so popular amongst young men in the 19th century it's because there was like not a war for a long time so there wasn't really anything to do so you could just go and fight a mountain rather than you know someone um and you know and, and that's all bound up in kind of colonization as well you know a lot of these mountain um landscapes were being kind of opened up and explored as, as part of the kind of british empire and the colonial project so she's writing at this really the tail end of this very macho very colonial very kind of war on nature period of of approaching mountains and yeah that the living mountain it's just a really short book it's just like a testament to what happens if you try to um unsee nature to kind of unmake that lens that's been kind of like drawn over the living world and to try to experience it in a way that is more direct that is in the body that is that is kind of decentered and she knows that she'll never achieve it she like she knows she'll never know the mountain because knowing the mountain is kind of part of the problem you know this idea that we can have a total knowledge of a thing and every time she gets close or kind of gets something she didn't get before or sees something she didn't see before the mountain becomes a bit bigger and a bit stranger like it never ceases to be strange in the coda of everybody needs beauty what i was really struck at is two things one there's a kind of refusal to see to despair but also what really struck me was how you write about the need to learn how to grieve for what we are losing and what we have lost with the climate crisis. And part of that seemed, to, you, you know, you mentioned at one point, like C.A. Conrad's amazing performances where they enact the kind of, um, kind of different audio uh, sounds from species that are either becoming extinct or have gone extinct. That's like a really powerful example. So yeah, I wondered whether you could touch on those two things, like why you chose in the coda to, yeah, how refusing to see to despair is important to you in the book and in general and how yeah this kind of emphasis on the need to grieve and the importance of grieving how that seems to really be one of the main aspects that rides out the book yeah i it's so hard because you know i came at the first part of this book with a kind of the question of nature and wellness or nature and happiness with the um hunch that it's like quite oppressive to be told to be happy all the time and i think approaching that last chapter which is all about lost places and places that have already been lost or places that are in the, the process of um disintegration submersion um destruction of various kinds the i the obligation to be like hopeful i find quite oppressive as well i find it really difficult to not be allowed to experience like a full range of emotions in relation to that to, to you know just the reality of, of climate crisis and it's a hard one to navigate because you simultaneously want to create um, a space or kind of, you know, recognize artists and activists um, who have created a space for difficult emotions like anger and grief and um, anxiety, you know, through art or through ritual. Um, it's, yeah, I was kind of guided by that work in the sense that like, it doesn't help anyone to not yeah not not allow people to express those feelings but then at the same time being like held in a constant state of grief or anxiety or rage is also not a very sustainable space to be in as an activist or anybody who like cares about the, the variety of entangled um, ongoing issues that have led to what we call the climate crisis um, so I kind of was led in the end towards theories of action that are or like ways of thinking about hope in terms of action, in terms of like the doing of things, whatever those things might be. Um, 
and with the kind of constraint I was talking around earlier that like no one person or no one action will <laughs> push the whole thing down you know this is the kind of Diane de Prima take on things in her revolutionary letters that like it's going to take all of us kind of pushing at the thing from various angles to like tear it down um yeah I, I kind of ended up by thinking about action that is collective action that is like networked um that, that may be kind of individual but is part of like a, a general kind of groundswell or change um and that takes place on different levels and like in different spaces as well um yeah the, the hope i guess in that chapter came from thinking about <laughs> the fact that it would be very convenient if we all succumbed to despair and stopped fighting that would be very very convenient for the fossil fuel industry for example you know for um <laughs> for for the financial system if everybody didn't care thinking about your uh, poetry pamphlet bad moon it seems to be very much about sitting with discomfort and loss and grief and i wondered if you could talk about the connections between um bad moon and kind of your work on grief and loss within everybody needs beauty i've got a quotation from you that i really loved um Matter is moving and the earth is not a cycle of loss, but in a constant process of being, which I feel like sums up your conclusion of the book very well, but is also linked to Bad Moon too. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Bad Moon, I don't really know where Bad Moon came from. Uh, I think I experienced periods of like seasonal melancholy, which is much better than experiencing periods of seasonal depression. Um, but I just indulged in a lot of horror movie watching uh, around the turn of the seasons um, in 2019, I guess it was, it was before the pandemic. And I became really obsessed with ways of telling stories about human entanglements with the more than human through um, not so much the occult, but through the idea of the omen and the idea that there are that the world is made up of signs um, that we are like invited to interpret and read. Um, not necessarily the idea that there's like a single intelligence behind those signs, but you know that the, the possibility that there are um, symbols and kind of cultures of reading those symbols in omens. And yeah, I wrote this kind of long, slightly hallucinatory sequence that's a sort of post-apocalyptic setting it's not too clear what has happened um but it, it centers around this couple who end up in a cottage by the sea like a just quite sort of sweet retreat um and things begin to fall apart because the um energies and power relations particularly the uh, kind of misogynic power relations that have been kind of carried over from the pre-apocalyptic world are playing out still in this like really claustrophobic domestic sphere and I I was really interested to to try to write this because as a somebody who kind of works in the environmental humanities or eco-criticism we've it's been kind of agreed for a long time that apocalyptic registers are not very productive ways to write about environmental crisis because they offer lots of reasons they're hopeless they um, have been done so many times before that it like is easy to dismiss them as fiction it's quite entitled you know that most apocalyptic literature focuses on like America falling apart ignoring the real lived apocalypses that um, various indigenous communities have experienced for like hundreds of years so I wanted to try to write an apocalypse narrative, aware of all of its baggage and all of its failures, um, possibly, yeah, just as to, to create a space to process those difficult emotions or like allow those difficult emotions, like some breathing room. Um, and also to think about like the reality of living with climate crisis now, where we do just see apocalyptic imagery daily and we do see like signs that are like screaming um to to be read like really really like desperate to be read um that aren't being read properly that's kind of where it came from but it did start with a horror movie binge <laughs> can i when um i'm just interested in terms of the writing process of bad moon like where that fitted in with your writing 
of Everybody Needs Beauty in terms of temporally? I think it probably just, yeah, it's just kind of got in the way of, <laughs> I probably delivered my manuscript a bit late because I, um, yeah, I started writing Everybody Needs Beauty in this, like I started seriously writing it in early 2019. Um, and, over the summer of 2019 so like I think Forest had just been finished yeah it came at the tail end of writing Forest chapter actually so yes. I was kind of like immersed mm. in some of the like thinking around dark ecology and thinking around um yeah the, the idea of the forest as a place to sit with grief or somewhere to experience fear and desire and then I paused because it was the beginning of term and I was like I'm not gonna be able to write anything I'm like mm. you know doing doing term work um, so I just, yeah, binged horror movies and wrote Bad Moon really quickly then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe edited it a bit in spring of 2020. So it was a pre-pandemic book that was published during the pandemic. And was kind of about, I, I, I was worried about the ethics of publishing during the pandemic. I was like, God, does anybody, it's any poetry pamphlet, like what harm can it do? But like, you know, <laughs> does anybody want to read about something so like claustrophobic and so much to do with confinement and isolation? Well, it seems like um, it would be really nice to finish our conversation with a reading from Bad Moon. Um, and we just wanted to say thanks so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure showing to you. It's been such a joy to talk to you. And your questions have been so like generous that have really stretched my thinking. So thank you. Um, yeah, so this is just a couple of short pieces from Bad Moon. It seems there's nothing we can't get used to like rocks bursting into flames, the way the eyeball ruptures on the screen, wondering who suffers worst, not us, not me. The voices lost at sea and broken miles inland, where the lawns are on fire and the voice of white suburbia is reduced to a high-pitched wail with imperfect frequency. Each morning I wake and from the clouds I know I am far too late for low and sultry dawn. I want your animal breath beside me, warm and distant. I have learnt to read the skin, the scattered rash, staining the flesh with ugly tears, like syriform. I want to lay the cards out on your flesh. It is far too late for metaphors. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme. <laughs> <laughs>